Good morning. Good morning. So we've had um, we've had quite a week in in Boston, and uh, a lot of questions. How you how you supposed to respond to a week like this? You know, when on Monday at around three, when I heard the news, it dawned on me that my daughter, one of my daughters, had just told me an hour earlier she was going down to that area, and so immediately I was frantic in my heart, uh, and until I figured out that she had actually arrived there uh, at the finish line of the Boston Marathon after, shortly after, or near that area. But there are a lot of others who actually hundreds of others who had the same response as me, only to find out that they had a loved one who lost a limb, who was injured, or maybe who even died. And certainly as Christians, we uh, need to be praying. That's one of our response, praying for people affected by this tragedy. How else should we respond? Well, I, th- I, I don't think it was a coincidence that last Sunday night, Pastor Scott, his whole message here from where I'm standing right now was the privilege of Christians living without fear. The whole message, he, he sort of gave four or five different angles on fear, why we fear, and how it's a privilege for Christians to live without fear. Actually, the Bible says that, uh, and he quoted this, Hebrews chapter 2, it says, through death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power over death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so something like this occurs, a bomb goes off, there's literally terrorists on the loose, a city is fearful. Well, we're called to be different, look different. My wife, Stephanie, and I are going through the book of Deuteronomy. We just read in Deuteronomy, I think it's four, where it says that God gave the Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the, of the week, he gave the Sabbath to the Jews as a day of rest, and he says, so that you will be different. What does that mean? So that the world will look at them and say, what's up with that? They're, they're different. Well, one of the ways we're different is that we walk without fear. And that's a privilege. It's a privilege uh, as Christians We also walk in boldness. We just were in Luke chapter 13 a couple, a few weeks ago. At that time, some people were freaked out because the, the governor had murdered some Jews and they went to Jesus and said, Pilate has murdered some of us. What did Jesus say? He said, repent, you need to repent or you too will also perish. In other words, he was, 
He was bold with his faith. He was always loving, but he was bold. Last night, some of us went out and to the streets of Boston, and uh, the team I was with, we were no more than 20 yards away from the home that we left from. You know, we started off at a home. There was some evangelism training there. If you're interested, by the way, there's five weeks left. But um, 20 yards away, there's two people sitting on a porch. They're right in the middle of a conversation about what just happened and talking about why, why does this type of thing happen. We were bold with our faith. But you know, there's some other things. How do we look different? Who are the people God wants us to be in a time like this? Well, you know, I saw a lot of pride. Don't mess with Boston. Christians, don't, don't have a part of that, please. Boston was protected last week and these suspects were apprehended because of the mercy of God. Didn't have anything to do with Boston. Boston's problem is Boston is messing with God. That's Boston's problem. Please, Christians, and and I did see Christians participating in this type of thing. Please don't. Not throwing anyone into condemnation, but don't do that. The Bible says, wonderful verse, Colossians 3, verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. That's who we are. That's how we look different. In my neighborhood, there was about 500 people congregated on Friday night, chanting for almost three hours, USA, USA. It was a big block party. But for the grace of God, man, that's where I would be, right there along with them. But God saved me from that. It's not a time of celebration. The book of James says, weep well and mourn. Don't celebrate in a time like this. And so, how do we look different? We look different by not fearing. We look different by being bold with love. We, do, uh, we look different by walking in humility. Walking in love. I remember Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, the Monday or the, the, the I don't, I'm not sure which day of the week it was, but the day after 9-11, they asked him what he thought. He goes, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of things to think about and talk about, you know, in times like this, but there is one overriding fact. There were some people, 3,000, who were in that building who they went to work that day not realizing that that day they were stepping into eternity. And brothers and sisters, this is how we should be living every day of our life. As if we're stepping into eternity. And how do we do that? We, we prepare for eternity uh, by going chapter by chapter through the word of God. And I've heard before people say, if Jesus were coming back tomorrow, what would you be doing? And 
you know, the typical responses. You run around and try to tell as many people about the Lord, this type of thing. But the response I prefer is I would be doing exactly what I was doing the day before, exactly what God has called me to do simply and faithfully. God has called us to, simp- to prepare for eternity in whatever way he's uh, told us to do. But again, yes, it, it, it involves living in peace, not with fear, living with love. And, and not pride, but brokenness. The book club this month, The Calvary Road. I wish, I would that every one of you would read this book. It's just about brokenness. Millions have been sold. It's a book written in the 70s. They are, this is the book for this month, The Calvary Road. It's a very different message than you hear in a lot of churches in the United States today. Brokenness. In a good way, good brokenness. God says it's a broken spirit and a contrite heart that can draw unto him. And you know, this week, every week, that's, that's what God is, is, is calling us to, to be. So whether you want to join the book club or not, great, great book. Uh, but I want to just continue exactly, uh, pick up exactly where we left off. We, we prepare eternity for eternity here, and we do so by going through the Word of God. So I will ask you to rise. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we are in the book of Luke. The book of Luke. One of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible will be in it for the next few weeks. The prodigal son is in this chapter. The, the parable of the prodigal son it's, we'll be there next week, maybe even a couple of weeks, but this morning, the parable of the shepherd retrieving the lost sheep. Let's read it. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anyone else? Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him and to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins. If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. 
Father, how wonderful it is to come to you knowing, knowing you, Lord. We, we've know, we know you. You've, you've revealed yourself to us. We've, we're in a relationship with you, and we can come to you in a season like this knowing you and thanking you, Lord. But also, Lord, praying, praying this morning for every life that was touched by the events this week, particularly the, the families and friends of those who died, Lord. Comfort them, draw them to you. Reveal yourself to them, Lord. Cut them to the heart. Lord, this morning we, we read about lost sheep running away. Lord, if they're lost, find them, throw them over your shoulders. Rejoice for a time of rejoicing, Lord, in heaven. And Father, I, I pray for them and, and, and the, just the families traumatized by fear and terror and injury, Lord. We pray that people's eyes would be open to you. We pray for Boston. Have mercy on this city, Lord, this proud city. And your word, Lord, in Ezekiel, it says that you seek a man, even one, who will stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy destroy it, Lord. We're here. (laughs) We are here. And we're asking you to have mercy on our city. We thank you that you have this week. Father, we also pray in Jesus' name for uh, the body of Christ in this city and, and in America, Lord, that they would lay hold of the privilege of peace, of shalom. You are Jehovah Shalom, God, our peace. Lord, that we would not be a people who shrink back in fear as the world does, but live without fear, knowing that you have prepared or are preparing a place for us in heaven. When you return, you will bring us back to be with you, Lord. I pray, Father, we would be a people of boldness, And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that as the elect of God, which you call us, as the chosen, that we would put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and we would suffer long with you, Lord. As you weep over a dying world, Lord, but rejoice in the fact that your son provides salvation. Lord, we rejoice in that. And we affirm, Lord, that last song we sang, you are good. We just affirm that today. Whatever anyone else may be shaking their fist at you, crying out, we know this morning at Calvary Chapel in the city that you are good. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So when reading Luke chapter 15, you really should not begin in verse 1, but you should begin in the last sentence of the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 35. What does Jesus say? 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now remember when Luke wrote this book, there were no numbers next to the chapters and verses. This came as a shock to me when I started reading the Bible. When, the Bible, when this was written, there were no numbers and verses. That didn't come along for at least 750 years. It was just written as one long book. And so really this first verse of chapter 15, you really should begin with the previous sentence. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, I know all of you hear me, but not all of you have ears to hear. I know all of you hear me, but not all of you are, are going to accept what I have to say. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then what happens? Verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to what? Hear him. Wow. Let's slow down here. I got to tell you, when you read this carefully, this is a powerful, moving Beautiful picture here in verse 1. Verse 25, again, of the previous chapter, great crowd following Jesus, verse 25 says of chapter 14. Jesus says to this great crowd again, crowd, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And who comes out of the crowd to draw near to, to Jesus? Tax collectors and sinners. They emerge from from the crowd to listen to him. What a picture. The very ones that the religious people of the time avoided. They emerged from the crowd to draw near to him. Tax collectors. Today there are laws established by the, sp uh, the state specifying exactly what a tax collector can collect. The sales tax in the state of Massachusetts, 6.25%. And they can't collect by law anymore, for, at least for sales. And, uh, and, but there was, um, there was no such law at the time of Jesus. Laws were, were purposely vague. And so a tax collector could go out and they could collect however much they wanted for any reason they wanted. Hmm. You just pulled in 100 fish? Well, give me 75 cents for every one of those 100 fish. It was that arbitrary. It was crazy. And these guys, they were hated. Why? Because they became fabulously wealthy, as you might expect. And they just had the biggest houses and the biggest parties and the most expensive wine and the most expensive food. The Jews in particular, the religious people, hated them. Verse 1 says, tax collectors drew near to Jesus. And who else? Sinners. Now this word, I actually encourage you to go out and do a study of this word. It's the Greek word hamartolos. Look it up. It actually means devoted to sin. Devoted to sin. Hamartolos. Hamar just means the sin. But this is Tolos, you're devoted uh, to it. So these were not once in a while sinners. They were devoted to it. Ever have a season of your life? Things are really out of control. That described you. I mean, you were just devoted to 
sin. You were just devoted to it, devoted to drinking, just devoted to drugs. That's what your life was about. My life today, it's just going to be about running after sin. You didn't call it that at the time, but it was just, that's where you were. Some of you may be uh, there this morning, believe it or not. As you can see from this verse, you're in the right place. You're in the, the body of Christ. It's actually the right place for a person devoted to sin to come to. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if you want to hear the word of God, he was saying, to believe it, to embrace it, come near. And they did. It says, tax collectors and sinners emerged from the crowd and drew near to him to hear him. Verse 2. It says, the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners, people devoted to sin, and he eats with them. What's up with that? The Pharisees, we've talked about them before. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the really strict church people, the people who, who give church a bad, a bad name. I'm glad Jesus said that he's the head of the church because sometimes man makes a really big mess and bad name of the church. But tragically, these people, they had an enormous influence over the community in their day. Enormous influence. People were scared of these guys. They, there was this huge pretending going on to try to conform to what these guys wanted people to be like. So on the outside, they came off as perfect people. And you, you look at them and you go, man, did he... These people, really, I mean, have they ever done anything wrong? They just on the outside, they, they came off as saints. But, on the, but Jesus said of these people, he said here uh, in Matthew 23, do we have that first, Matthew 23? He said, woe, meaning you're in trouble. Trouble's coming to you. You scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. In other words, you pretenders. For you are like whitewashed Tombs, graves, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones. Ooh. On the outside, they came off as religious saints, whitewashed walls, but on the inside, no love. Dead man's bones. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can be the most religious person on the face of the earth, but if you have no love, you are what? Nothing. Nothing in the Greek and every other language means nothing. So here in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, these, these guys are complaining, what, what is up with this guy? He receives people devoted to sin and he eats with them. He receives them, meaning he invites them into his life. He eats with them. How can he be a holy man when he's with such unholy people? 
These guys, Pharisees, the scribes, they believed, they really did, as religious people have throughout the ages, that these people, tax collectors, sinners, that they had been written off by God, that they were sort of now outside of those that God had any dealings with or cared about at all, despised by God. And they're stunned. Not only is Jesus receiving them into his life, he's he's actually eating with them. You don't do that. You just don't do that. Now in Luke chapter five, maybe which took place about a year earlier in Jesus' ministry, and you may be thinking, yeah, a year earlier in Jesus' ministry and a year earlier when Steve taught that, uh, Luke chapter 5. But um, the same thing happened, uh, uh, really, uh, that happened in this chapter. A bunch of Pharisees complained to Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners, people devoted to sin? Why are you doing that? Anyone, anyone remember what he said? Review? Oh, man, will you get five stars? Here it is. You may remember this. I have not come to call the righteous, he said, but sinners to repentance. That's what he said in chapter 5. In other words, what he was saying, if you think you're all set, if you think you're all set with God, you're A-OK. You, you, and the, you and God are like this. You got this tight thing going on. I didn't come for you. I did not come for you. That, that is a scary statement when you just pause and reflect about what he's saying. He goes, literally, I did not come for you. But if you are someone who know you are in big time trouble with God, that's who I came for. That's what he said to them in Luke chapter five. Now here in uh, chapter 15, Jesus gets the same qu- question. Why, why does he even, why do you even hang out with these kind of people? That's wrong. You're polluting yourself. So Jesus actually tries a different response here. Keep in mind, by the way, Jesus love, loves these uh, Pharisees. He, he loves these scribes. And I'm really glad about that. You know why? Because I have a chunk of Pharisee right inside of my heart. And, and, and I'm glad that, you know, Jesus tries one thing with me and it doesn't work. He, he, he tries another thing <laughs> until he gets a hold of me. More on that a little later. But um, he, he tries something different uh, with them and he, you know, he, Jesus is, he's, he knows he's going to the cross for these people. He, he knows he's going to be literally cut off from God the Father because of these people. He knows that the judgment for every, the sin of these people is going to be coming on him. And he wants to reason with them here. And he, so he says, verse 3, he says, so he spoke this parable to them. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Listen. Listen up, everybody. This is who God is. 
This is who he is. This is how God looks at you. He really does. The Bible is a book where we discover, we read about who God is. This is who he, this is, who he is. You may have heard this statement before. Ever, ever heard this statement? God loves you so much that if you were the only person in the world, he would have come and died just for you. Ever heard that statement? Yes? No? Yeah. Does the Bible actually say that? Does it, does it really say that? Does, where in the Bible does, can you really read the theology behind that? Anyone want to take a guess? Right here. I have a person in the point back going. <laughs> right here, among other places. So when you're, when, you're, when you're sharing that with someone, you're not just sharing philosophical, theological gobbledygook. You're, you're, you're sharing the real heart of God that's right out of the word of God. That's what you're sharing. That's exactly what um, is going on right here. Now, what does this all mean? Jesus leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. Well, among other things, it means that this, you are not just a number. You are not some product of arbitrary random chance. You are not some kind of accident brought about by chance, uh, chance mutations occurring over millions of years. You're not that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are in God's eyes an individual, precious in his eyes, different and distinct from every other human being on the face of the earth, created for a relationship of love with him. If you're taking notes, I'll repeat it. If you're not taking notes, I'll repeat it anyway. The Bible says that you are in, in God's eyes, you are an individual precious in his eyes, different and distinct from every other human being on the face of the earth, created for a relationship of love with him. Now, in a communist country, but not only a communist country, really in any community or government governed by man-made philosophy or religion, decisions are made based upon the common good rather than uh, the common good or the good of the state, not based on the good of the individual. God is not like that. So in this parable, there are a hundred sheep and one takes off and gets lost and the shepherd leaves the 99 in the middle of the, verse four says, in the middle of the wilderness, they are in the wilderness and he goes to find the one. Now this parable confuses a lot of people. This parable confuses a lot of people. Wait a second. Now wait, 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 wait. He's leaving 99 sheep alone in the wilderness. There's wild beasts there. There's wolves in the wilderness. There, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't even seem right. That actually seems wrong. You're right, it doesn't make sense to the natural man. 
That's why we come, you know, in, 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 you know to church to, to, to read the Bible. You know, as we were out sharing our faith last night on the streets, over and over again, people would respond to us saying, well, I think God is like this, but the problem is that opinion changes every six months. God doesn't change. And he loved us so much he gave us this word. Dude, this, is, this, this is who he is. And yes, in a, uh, it, it, to the natural man, it doesn't make any st- uh, sense. Uh, and when we try to wrap our minds around this thought, but, but, but this, this is how God thinks about you. This is how God thinks about you. God doesn't say, you know, I got, I got a good flock here. I, I got 99 fat, fluffy white sheep uh, left. And this is a, this is a, a good living, and, and you know, uh, I, I'm not going to go after that one and, and, and risk losing maybe the whole flock, particularly considering that sheep is a rebellious sheep. That, that, that sheep is trouble. That sheep, if I went and got it, it may bring more trouble to the sheep that are here. No, you know, it's a, that's how man thinks about you. Man thinks that about you. You know, apart from the Lord and the Spirit of God living on us, that's how we think about man. But that's not what God thinks about you. You may have heard of the United States Army's no man left behind policy. It's fascinating, actually. The Army's no man left behind policy. It's actually a soldier's creed that every soldier recites during basic training. And part of the policy is this. If a soldier in the military is wounded and stranded and left by himself on the battlefield, the army's policy is you don't leave him behind. You go back and you get him. Regardless of the risk. So you have these crazy situations, crazy to the natural man, where a soldier is left wounded. The army may actually risk dozens of lives to save that one person. In fact, there may be multiple people who actually die just to save the one wounded person who actually may wind up dying himself in a military hospital. And of course, there are those who think this is crazy. You know, in, in, in other countries, this is like the furthest thing from, you know, uh, the, the army's mind. But, you know, I was actually on the internet and, and, you know, saw people discussing this and they're like, where did this policy come from anyway? Actually, I know the answer. Anyone know where the answer is? <laughs> That's right. But listen, this is, this is a big deal here. God started it. The policy is precisely what God's view of the individual is. Yeah, oh, yeah, Ricky, he's dying on the battlefield. What a bummer. He was such a nice guy. Obviously, though, we can't risk someone else dying by going to get him. No, no. That's not the heart of God. God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. He is a plan that's completely separate and distinct from every other human being on the face of the earth. And in a very real way, this world is just about you and God and no one else. At one level, that's what the Bible teaches. That's how he views you. Psalm 139 
verse 17 and 18. Wonderful verse. It's just, this is David crying out to the Lord, Lord, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Crazy but true. This is how God thinks of you. This is how God thinks of you. Let's continue. Verse 5 says this. When he had found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. When he had found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. This is what Jesus does. He seeks out and saves what was lost. Actually, in Luke chapter 19, he says this. One of the names he, he goes by, he himself, referred to himself uh, by, was the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's what Jesus does. So when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, as crazy as it may seem to you, as crazy as it would be that God would leave 99 perfectly good sheep and go out and find one who is dying, when God came into this world 2,000 years ago, he had a perfect view into the future. He came with you, yes, you in mind. He came saying, Steve Cole is lost. Stephen Drake is lost. Jasmine is lost. Ricardo is lost. Christina, lost. He came into uh, the world like that to seek and save the lost. By the way, what does that mean, lost? It's actually defined for us in Ephesians chapter 3. This is what it means to be lost. Paul describing, uh, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, letting them know what they were like. In case you guys didn't know it, he's telling the church of Ephesus, this is what God saved you from. Saved you, from. you were dead in trespasses and sins. When you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's referring to the devil, by the way, Satan. And then he goes on and he says, you were without Christ being aliens from this commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be lost. Now, it's no coincidence that Jesus uses sheep here in verses four through six. Sheep are really, really dumb. Like us. When they get lost, forget about it. And oftentimes they have no clue that they're lost. Sheep have no sense of direction. Dogs and cats find their way home. Sheep, if they wander off from the flock and get separated, they're doomed. By the way, they're also extremely slow, incredibly vulnerable uh, to predators. They virtually have no ability to defend themselves. In fact, I'm, I understand that some sh uh, sheep, when they get fat, you knock them over, you're, you're, you've got them. 
at that point. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they, um, they're helpless when it comes to, to getting food. Camels can sense water. Vultures can sport prey. Bears and many other animals smell food. Sheep just, they just wander around in circles. They, 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 just, they, they can't get food. Without a shepherd, sheep are hopelessly lost. Same with you and me. And your families and your neighbors and your, your city and the world. Sheep without a shepherd are lost. So are you. Please, if you're sitting here this morning thinking that you're anything else without Jesus, you're kidding yourself. Without Jesus, you're lost. You are lost. Notice how verse 4 says that he sought them out until he found them, until he finds it. He doesn't stop until he finds it. So here we're introduced to one of the most controversial teachings of the whole Bible. People argue about this for the last 2,000 years. The Bible says you didn't choose God. God chose you. Jesus actually said it himself. John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I choose you. And by the way, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That you should go and bear fruit. So I don't claim to understand this uh, whole uh, Bible teaching about God choosing us. But uh, it's true that he chose you. And after he chose you, he sought you out. And he sought you out until he found you. In other words, he didn't come to the world to fail. He sought you out knowing all along that he would find you, his own words. He came to seek and save the lost. And then in verse 5 it says, and when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Notice the, the shepherd uh, doesn't find the sheep and, and, and whatever. You stupid beast. You know, you, you, you just... You just wait till I get back at the ranch. What I'm going to take out the switch and do to you, you know. Uh, next time I shave you, I'm going to shave you real, real close, and you'll feel it then, you know. He doesn't, you know, doesn't, that's not who God is. Listen, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love rejoices when a lost sheep is found. So where were you, where were you when, when God found you? Where were you? I was underneath an apple tree in Switzerland. I was 22 years old when God found me. I was lost. I was lost. It wasn't so much what I was doing at the time, it's, it's what I was thinking. This hopelessness just started to creep in. Just started to creep in, and I didn't know what to do with it. God changed all that. He showed me Jesus. It wasn't the Jesus I grew up with, a baby in a manger you talked about on Christmas, but Jesus, the resurrected living God. who was knocking on the door of my heart saying, please let me in. Maybe you're here today and you've never opened your heart to Jesus. Jesus died for you. 
The Bible says you and every other man and woman in the world is a sinner, meaning you've disobeyed God's laws. The Bible says the penalty, the punishment for disobeying God's law is death, but that God so loved you, he sent his only son into the world for you, Jesus, to die so that you would not have to die, but that you, so that you could have an everlasting relationship with him. He's seeking you out, and it says he will seek you out until he finds you. Notice verse 5, he lays, he, he lays the sheep on his shoulders. Now, you know, sometimes guys, gals, in the midst of high trauma, when, when you just can't take it anymore, it, it sounds goofy, but you just need to close your eyes and visualize this. God is carrying you on your shoulders when you're in a season of trauma that's who he is, and he's doing it rejoicing. Think about that. Not as a burden, not reluctantly. He's doing it rejoicing. That's who God is. Verse 8 says, or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. That's what God, that's his heart for you. Really interesting thing about this chapter. Notice how in, there, really there's three parables in this chapter. There's one about the 900 sheep. There's one about the 10 coins. And then the prodigal son is about how many? Two, right? There was two sons. Notice the progression. It starts off with describing the heart of God when there's just one who leaves the hundred and then describes the, the heart of God when just one is lost out of ten, but then it's two. And we'll read about that next week, God willing. And you know, when the story finishes, the story finishes in Luke 23, when Jesus, the only son, God's only son, it goes from 100 to 10 to 2 to 1. And when the one dies, that's when the heart of the father really, really, really broke. And he did that all for you and me. The Bible says, and the world, none accepted. And so, we're going to close now, and I'd ask the worship team to come up, and if you've been asked to pray, if you could uh, come to the corners, just to these two corners now. Look, if, if, uh, if you've never done that, if you've never, you know, Jesus knocking at the door to your heart, 
Father loves you. He came to seek you and get you. His only begotten son. He didn't have a hundred sons. He didn't have ten. He didn't even have two. He had his only begotten son. Died so that you can enter into an everlasting relationship. So not only to die for your sin, every other, any sin that you've ever done, he died to pay the punishment for that, but he also died to bring you into an everlasting relationship with the living God. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus or prayed to come into that relationship, while the worship team begins, just come up and uh, pray with uh, one of the prayer teams up here. Or if anything else is stirred in your heart while I've been speaking today and you want to pray with a brother or sister, if you want to pray about anything, come up and pray for them. So why don't we stand? I'll close in prayer and the worship team will begin. Lord, what a picture. What a picture of who you are. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that, Lord, with all my heart, I just pray that not one single person leaves this room with the same idea of how you look at them, including me, Lord. And Father, to, to think that with your son Jesus, your only begotten son, that you sent him into this world to seek and to save us who are deserving of death and deserve nothing more than that. And nothing less. You sent your son, Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, I, I pray, Father, as we go out this week, you'd help us Lord, as your children, as followers of Jesus, to seek and save that which is lost. In this city, Lord, you said in the book, you said in the book of Acts that in the city of Corinth there are many that you were drawn to yourself. Oh, Lord, we believe the same thing for Boston. Many who are lost, you're seeking, you're sending out to us to seek and save them, Lord. Empower us to do that very thing. We can only do it by your spirit, Lord. Give us a boldness. Pray that we walk in peace this week. Not in pride, but humility, Lord. I pray that each of us, Lord, by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would look distinct, separate, different, different in a God way this week. And God, we love you and we need you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.